What do we want out of AI systems? And what are the most important problems to be working on right now? My guest today, Jonathan Frankel, has spent a great deal of time on work involving the lottery ticket hypothesis. It posits that dense, randomly initialized feedforward neural networks contain subnetworks, or winning tickets, that, when trained in isolation, reach test accuracy comparable to the original network in a similar number of iterations. One hope, which still hasn't quite been realized, is that if you could know something about these winning tickets in advance, you could train networks much more efficiently. While Jonathan and I discussed a number of papers along this research direction, our conversation took a turn towards the question I began with. As you'll hear in this conversation, Jonathan no longer thinks that the lottery ticket hypothesis is a line of work worth pursuing. And so we also dipped into some of the meta-questions. The philosophy of science manifest in Jonathan's approach in lottery ticket work and elsewhere, how he thinks about what the important problems in deep learning are, and what we need to think about before we dip into developing policies around AI systems. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Jonathan Frankel. Jonathan, you've been pursuing a very interesting line of work with the lottery ticket hypothesis for quite a few years now. And at the moment, of course, you've been working on Mosaic NML, and there are a lot of really exciting directions you're exploring there. But I'd love to start with our usual question about how did you get into AI in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, it was it was a little bit of a bunch of things. Um, I think you have to go back to actually before my PhD. I spent a year at Georgetown Law. Um, this was kind of a year in between my master's and my PhD. Um, and I spent a year there working on technology policy. And I think what I already saw at that time was that AI, or at least machine learning, was starting to become a force to be reckoned with in the policy world. Um, I worked on police use of facial recognition, which today sounds pretty basic in some sense compared to what we do, but then was kind of still novel and still something that, you know, people didn't fully understand. I I remember the Seattle Police Department had FAQs on its website about their facial recognition system, one of which was, you know, isn't this biased? And the answer was, it's an algorithm, it can't see race, um, which, you know, sounds very silly today, but then, you know, based on what 
people knew, especially in the popular consciousness, was not a ridiculous thing to say. Um, so it kind of became clear to me that I had to know more about this topic. And that was part of my motivation, actually, to go back to grad school. Um, and from there, I worked on a bunch of different topics. I worked in security, cryptography, policy, and kind of found myself getting pulled back into AI, um, just reading papers on the side, and eventually played with neural network pruning. And that started my whole career. I'm curious about the story of how the lottery ticket hypothesis itself, you mentioned sort of playing around with neural network pruning. So was it, I guess, in the process of maybe running experiments, just sort of asking yourself questions that you ended up thinking about the the idea of lottery tickets? Yeah, it was actually, you know, really simple at the end of the day. I was reading some papers on pruning. The topic kind of caught my eye as something that was interesting. You know, can we understand these things better? Can we get down to their essence, what these neural networks are doing? Things that, you know, never really came to be in pruning, but at the time, again, sounded very reasonable. And, you know, from there, I just asked this really dumb question, why can we only prune networks at the end of training? And asked a faculty member at MIT who gave me a dumb answer. Um, and it made me want to go and study, you know, made me want to go and ask some basic questions that could be scientifically answered with experiments. I was pretty frustrated with the fact that we say so much in the deep learning literature, and it's still true today, that it's just unsubstantiated. There's no evidence behind it. It's just an intuition or received wisdom or something like that. And I wanted to go and pose a bunch of hypotheses and test them. And one of them was what kind of became the lottery ticket hypothesis. It, it was called that at the time. There were just a bunch of different hypotheses. And that was one of them. And I tested it. And it on very tiny networks, like, you know, one hidden layer networks for XOR, it seemed to work. And, you know, from there, kind of the rest is history to some extent. Before we dive into some of the details of the lottery ticket hypothesis itself, I think from what you're saying here and what you've said in a lot of other places, I see you very much as an empiricist when it comes to the claims you're willing to make about what's going on in neural networks, what you feel you can justify. And as you just said, there does seem to be a lot of unsubstantiated stuff in the literature. There are terms thrown around the famous batch norm reduces internal covariate shift, whatever that means. And so I'm, I'm curious a little bit just about how you think about this, perhaps your, your maybe mental model or framework for how do I think about questions in deep learning? How do I form hypotheses? How do I justify things? Like when you are forming a hypothesis or theory or evaluating those things, how do you think about what it means to, to justify, to refute that? It's pretty simple for me. Data. I... I believe nothing until I see the data in front of me. And in fact, I often believe nothing until I've reproduced that data myself. Because I've seen a lot of circumstances in which um, seemingly very clever papers have cooked the books, um, intentionally or unintentionally. So I don't, you know, I don't mean to accuse people, but have failed to run an ablation or have picked a really easy baseline. Things that I think we do unconsciously because we really want our experiments to work. And so we will often, you know, we will often find ways to make it seem like they work to us. And then from there, you know, we get ourselves into trouble sometimes. And there are a bunch of papers. I don't like to name names on this stuff just because it's kind of, you know, it's a lot of students. And, you know, I've been a student. I understand, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you should be allowed to make mistakes and not get publicly punished for it. 
but there are a lot of papers that I've seen that just I have not been able to reproduce for the life of me. Um, and it's very, very frustrating. It's it's a sad state for the literature to be in. So it's really knowledge is what you can show with evidence and what you can show when you, it. you know, we can go back to Karl Popper and, you know, falsifiability if you want. It is when you try very hard to falsify an idea and can't. That is knowledge. I was actually just going to reference Popper. I was thinking about his conjectures and refutations because it sticks out to me that you still refer to the lottery ticket hypothesis as a hypothesis. And he seems very clear that a theory, something like this, that explains the world, it can never be fully proven. There's always this kind of tentative status about it. But as goes with falsifiability, you can conclusively make negative claims about theories. And then sort of by that iterative process, you get to something better and better over time. I think that's, I mean, I'm a big Popper fan when it comes to this. You know, I at some point during my PhD, I sat down and read Popper because I felt like I needed to understand what science was better if I was going to make claims about it. But for me, it really is all about just, you know, it is hypothesis, attempt to falsify. Hypothesis, attempt to falsify. And the only thing that matters is, did it work? Like that, that is all that matters to me. Um, I don't care about the theory. I don't care about your fancy math. I just want to know, did it work? And it it sounds so dumb and so simple to say, but I don't think we should take for granted that, you know, a lot of folks in the community still think that a fancy proof is a way to establish knowledge, and it's not. It's useless, quite frankly. I appreciate that perspective. So let's start with how maybe this framework sort of applied at the very beginnings of your work when you were first thinking about the lottery ticket hypothesis. So you very clearly set out your claims, what you're saying with the hypothesis, the studies, the supporting evidence. Could you maybe walk me through a little bit of that, maybe with a little bit of this hypothesis attempt to falsify in mind? Yeah, and I wouldn't look I wouldn't look at the lottery ticket hypothesis as the end all be all of a of you know great work on this front. Um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, I it was the first attempt at this. And I think a lot of this philosophy is, you know, post hoc in some sense, looking back and trying to do better work in the future. And I will not claim that the lottery ticket hypothesis is my best work, far from it. It's my worst work. It was my earliest work. Um, and so I think it's it's pretty important to emphasize that from the beginning. I know it's looked at as, you know, a popular paper these days. That doesn't mean it's my best work, far from it. And I think the work that I did a lot later in my PhD reflected the best of these ideas. But I do think, and, I, and I'll point out one big flaw with the way that I, um, with the way that I did this, but, you know, we'll come back to that. So remind me, don't let me off the hook there. We'll do. But pretty simply, it's a hypothesis about the fact that there exist these smaller networks that can, you know, that can be trained. And the, the biggest challenge there is, you know, it's not really a falsifiable hypothesis. That's kind of the big flaw. Um, because in order to falsify it, we'd have to look at every single subnetwork and show that none of them have this property. So it, practically speaking, it's non-falsifiable. And that's something that I really, you know, I'm critical of myself about. And then, you know, from there, I, you know, I go through and I try to find existential evidence to support this hypothesis. 
it's really an existential statement, not a universal statement. And so the way that you justify it is with more existential evidence. But it's non-falsifiable. I can't show that a network lack these lacks these things practically. And I can't show that a network that, you know, I can't show that all networks contain them. And so in some sense, it doesn't really follow the best practices that Popper would describe. I wish I were making a more universal statement as opposed to an existential statement, but you know, science isn't perfect and you make the best with what you've got. The other big thing, and this is advice I give to PhD students all the time, ask two-sided questions. That is to say, ask questions where no matter what result you get, you get a cool, you learn something about the world. I have a follow-up paper to the lottery ticket hypothesis where I look at the question of neural network training and the optima that they end up in and ask the question, at what point in training is the optimum determined? Now, it's a cool question because one hypothesis is maybe it's determined from initialization. Cool. That would be interesting. Maybe it's determined, maybe it's undetermined until the very last step of training, but that last step of training probably isn't going to bring you to a different optimum. So the answer has to be somewhere in the middle. And I love that because you know it's a measurement question now. There's a phenomenon I want to measure. And no matter what I find, I'm going to gain knowledge and learn something. Those are my favorite kinds of questions to ask these days. It is a guaranteed paper if you ask a good question, no matter what the result is. So if you're a PhD student out there, you know, I love my two-sided questions now and I encourage students to work in it because it takes all the stress of will this work or not away. It limits what you can ask to a certain extent, but honestly, I think you can kind of refactor most questions into a two-sided question. The original lottery ticket paper was not a two-sided question. I got lucky that it worked. Um, Because it could have been that I just couldn't find these things or, you know, maybe they did exist, maybe they didn't, maybe I had a method to find them, maybe I didn't, and I could have just gone home with nothing. Um, But that follow-up question, you know, when does the network end up in, you know, when is the optimum determined? That is a great two-sided question. And so I really try hard to ask those in my papers these days. I like that way of putting it. And that does seem to be a theme I see coming up more and more now. What are the questions not just that that fewer people are asking, but as you said, the ones that are going to lead you into interesting places, not the ones that necessarily everybody else is asking or are of the form. Can we get a step improvement in whatever this new technique we're using is? Jumping back to your self-criticism, though, of the initial lottery ticket hypothesis and its non-falsifiability, I'm curious, is there a form of that original hypothesis or maybe a similar question that you've thought about formulating that you think you could formulate that maybe stands up better to the scrutiny that you've put the original under? I don't think so, to be honest. And so in some sense, you know, you can either look at this and go, wow, today I wouldn't even ask that question. And today I might ask that question, but I'd really, my belief is that if I were to ask that question, I'd want to ask it very cheaply and very quickly because there are lots of questions like this or lots of hypotheses, lots of conjectures of wouldn't it be cool if blank worked? And those are great. Like those are great questions to ask, but I see PhD students getting caught up in asking a million of those and then taking two months to try to answer each one. And then you end up in a place where, you know, you, you end up with nothing. And so the answer at that point is if you're going to ask those kinds of questions, it's about efficiency. It is about how quickly you can possibly get through all these experiments. Like, I think that's really, if you're going to play this game, that's really how you got to play it. That's interesting to me because I guess 
sort of noting the immense popularity that the lottery ticket hypothesis itself got. And if I remember correctly, it won a best paper award when you submitted it to iClear that year. After getting rejected from NeurIPS previously for the exact same paper. So take that for what you will as well. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. What sticks out to me about that is despite this criticism you've given, and I guess as you've said now, it is is sort of a, a post hoc criticism. It's one of those where there's this, wouldn't it be cool if X worked? And I think one of these things that's developed and that we'll touch on later on is, well, pruning is always done at the end of training. Why couldn't we do it at the beginning? And it would be kind of cool if we were able to know a lot of things in advance that it doesn't seem like we necessarily do know, or at least that we don't have the evidence that we know. And so do you think that maybe, I'm curious what, you think about this paper in particular, maybe captured people's imaginations to that point? Do you think it was maybe this sort of, you know, it would be really cool if we could be more efficient with neural networks and and prune earlier and earlier on? Do you think there's anything else about it beyond kind of that story that I and maybe some of our listeners are familiar with that really caught people's attention? It's hard to say. And I think I'm almost the wrong person to ask because, you know, I'm not the one whose attention it caught in some sense. you know, I'm just someone, a PhD student who wrote an interesting paper. Um, but I think, you know, when I look back, there may be one or two things. One is the idea that training is so much less efficient than it could be. Um, and if you want to see the connection between the lottery ticket work and Mosaic, it's that. Training is so much less efficient than it could be. And Mosaic is the logical continuation of the lottery ticket work without the pruning. That's how I look at it. Um, the other piece is simply just the raw, empirical, scientific way of coming at things. I was unashamed of that approach, largely because I didn't realize there were that many other approaches or people had different opinions because I was new to this. But it is just completely unapologetic empiricism and only empiricism. There is not a theorem in that paper. There's not an attempt at a theorem in that paper. In the original version that got accepted, there was no mathematical notation to describe the hypothesis. And eventually my advisor made me add it. So it's really, you know, it, you know, it is unapologetic about how it looks at the world in that approach. And I continue to be deeply unapologetic about empiricism. Um, And I continue to want to rake theoreticians over the coals about whether they have anything to offer the world. And I think that's kind of one of the other enduring factors. Today, I really don't think people should be working on lottery tickets as a research area. I just don't think it's the most interesting problem out there. Um, But that said... I do think, you know, I think there are a lot of things that we should take away from that paper that should inform how we do science and what science we do going forward. Okay, I do want to come back to what you think might be some interesting research areas later in this interview, but I would love to maybe continue on the sequence of papers and investigations you did that do fall under lottery tickets. And the next one I had in mind was this paper on comparing rewinding and fine tuning in neural network pruning, again, on on that theme of pruning. Could you maybe introduce a little bit about learning weight rewinding and and what you got at in this paper? Yeah, so first of all, I won't say I got at anything in this paper because I'm not the first author. Alex Renda is, and this is his work. Um, So I want to emphasize that from the start. This is not my work. Um, I'm a supporting, I remember the supporting cast, but this is Alex Renda um, and all the hard work he did. So let's start there. Yeah, I think there's a bad habit we have of looking at the author who 
we know best, not the author who actually did the work and author ordering, you know, just because Yashua Bengio is on a paper does not mean Yashua Bengio did a damn thing for that paper mm-hmm. in the same way that just because I'm on a paper doesn't mean I did anything for it. Um, look for the first author and maybe look for the last author, but credit where credit is due to the students who worked on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that as context, um, Alex's work is really about this question of, you know, lottery tickets are all about finding networks early in training or at the beginning of training that, you know, can train to completion sparse. Um, the, you know, a good follow-up question to ask is, are these just better pruned networks in general? Like, you know, we're, we're really focused on, can we train sparse networks? And there, there's no competition for this algorithm right now, or at least there is now, but at the time there wasn't for finding these sparse networks that could train. But are sparse networks that you find at the beginning of training competitive with networks you find at the end of training that you find the traditional way that you prune? And this paper says, well, sort of. I mean, it's not it's not clear cut, but they're not far off. But there is this important question of, you know, when you go back to the beginning of training, you're doing two things. One is that you're taking the weights back to an earlier state. Maybe you're kind of keeping the network centered. But the other is that you're redoing the whole learning rate schedule. You are, you know, you are training the network starting at a high learning rate again and then going back down to a low learning rate. And, you know, we asked the question, can you decouple these? Is the learning rate more important than the rewinding of the weights or what? And the answer was really the learning rates are what mattered. When we prune a network, even at the end of training, we should go back to this higher learning rate, give the network some time to recover. And there are all sorts of hypotheses as to why this might happen. And, you know, again, I don't really, you know, no hypothesis matters until you've gone and, you know, you've gone and actually tested it, but it was a neat observation that maybe, you know, we were able to learn something from the lottery ticket results that were relevant to pruning in general, not just to lottery tickets. Right. So when you and and Renda and and Carbon published this paper, as you have just said, you hadn't investigated why learning rate rewinding necessarily works well. And so it's still, it seems like there still aren't any hypotheses out there that you feel like are sufficiently backed by empirical evidence that kind of explain that why. Um, I mean, it's, you know, we, we didn't get time to study it really. Um, you know, we didn't get time to look at the lost landscape after you do uh, learning rate rewinding and not weight rewinding. And so it's, you know, it was something that just we didn't have time to get into and we all had other projects to move on to. So it's a question that I think has been studied a little bit in the community, but honestly, I haven't seen a definitive answer. And I would like to, you know, I'd still love it if somebody went and studied what happens on the lost landscape when you play with this learning rate schedule after pruning. Do the networks really end up in different places? Why does learning rate rewinding work better? Can we try to make any statement about this? All that the paper showed was that it does work better. That's it. Um, as to why, well... You know, we'll have to figure that out. Fair enough. There are some choices that are made in this paper about the way to prune. For instance, pruning 20% of weights. And you have this um, sort of idea of iterative magnitude pruning that gets introduced later as well that we'll talk about. But for things like this 20%, the way you come at them is... This, again, just sort of over time, looking at different values, seeing what happens to work well? Honestly, no. It's even simpler than that in this case. I took a really very conservative strategy in the lottery ticket paper because I didn't want it to be about the pruning algorithm. I wanted it to be about the results. So, you know, don't try to maximize efficiency. Just try to get a result. And in this paper, 
we really wanted to just, again, get a clean result. And in the publication process, if you change anything about a strategy that differs from prior work, someone will ask you a hard question about why you did that, because it's right to, you know, accuse you of cooking the books. Did you make that choice differently? Because quietly, that choice was necessary for your stuff to work. And, you know, if you hadn't made that choice, would things have still worked? And so it is always a good practice. And for any PhD student out there to anchor any choices you make in something that happened in prior work. If you do that, then, you know, you basically, you, it's a get out of jail free card for the design choices you make. And so we did that in this paper. We didn't want to play with, you know, we didn't want to play around with, you know, changing the pruning algorithm. We didn't want to play around with other pruning algorithms, at least initially, because we wanted to make sure that what we did was defensible. What we did was something that, you know, the paper would get in on its merits and not get rejected due to some little choice we made that got reviewers concerned about deeper problems that might exist in the paper. And this happens a lot. That's a really good tip, I think, for especially for works that are that are continuing on on the same line. The next paper I wanted to talk about, this is one that you did lead, was on linear mode connectivity and the lottery ticket hypothesis, which has some really interesting observations here. So this is where you study iterative magnitude pruning that I mentioned earlier, and you introduce some of these ideas like stability to SGD stochastic gradient descent noise and instability analysis. Could you tell me a little bit about how how this paper came about, what the questions in it were, how you started thinking about those? This paper came about, and really this is kind of, you know, Carolina Jugaite, who's the second author on this paper, was central in everything that happened in this paper. And a lot of the key ideas are hers. So it's important to, again, clarify that. Um, the paper came about from a conversation between Carolina and I, where I had observed recently that in cases where the lottery ticket algorithm wasn't working at initialization, it was working very early in training. And we talked again about hypotheses for why this might be happening. Maybe there's something very noisy about SGD early in training that scrambles the weights so much that initialization doesn't matter anymore. And then the question is, you know, how do you substantiate that? That's a very fuzzy hypothesis. And one way of dealing with all this SGD noise would be lower the learning rate a bunch. And so we tried that, and that actually worked. That gave you lottery tickets again. Worse lottery tickets, but lottery tickets nonetheless. Then you try learning rate warm-up. What if you have the learning rate low early in training and high later in training? That worked too, suggesting that maybe there really is something early in training. But you still need to measure this effect. You need some way to say, what? how do you measure SGD noise? And a lot of people love to go to things like looking at the variance of the gradients or things like that, or the magnitude of the gradients, but that's kind of descriptive, not, doesn't really tell you anything concrete about the final network. And I really, you know, we came around eventually, and this is Carolina's idea, um, to the fact that, you know, let's look at the outcome of optimization. Does changing, you know, does, is the noise early in training sufficient to affect the outcome of optimization in a meaningful way? And in this case, the outcome was what optimum does it end up in? So that was really kind of, you know, the paper was rejected three times before it got in. So it went through a lot of iteration and it was a hefty paper. Um, and it still is a really hefty paper. It's kind of, I'm most proud of the writing in this paper of all of the work that I've done. This is the writing that I'm most pleased with because it is such a difficult story to tell and it is so complicated. And I think we did a great job getting it down to something that was simple and comprehensible. And that was a 
again, three rejections before it got in. I do like the shift in measurement that you kind of indicated there about, well, how do we measure SGD noise? What is the quantity that we're, or the thing that we are interested in the first place? And instead of things like magnitudes of radiance, which are a value that could be reasoned as a proxy for something, you're like, why don't we just jump to the thing we are concerned with in the first place, even if that maybe takes a little bit more time, the actual outcome of optimization at the end of the day. Exactly. I, and I think to me, it's again, it, you can really boil down a lot of my recent work into what are we trying to measure and how are we measuring it? That's kind of, you know, at the end of the day, it's what I encourage students to do. I think it's very much a, it is a risk-free way to write papers. And a lot of the stress of a PhD is in whether your papers will, whether your work will result in anything. This is a way to completely take away that concern. One of the claims you make or a big claim you make in this paper is that the outcome of optimization, the thing we're interested in measuring is determined to a linearly connected region. Do you mind breaking down that statement just a little bit? Definitely. The answer is pretty simple. Um, you know, take a network and try training it multiple times, like fix a network. It could be at the beginning of training or sometime during training, make a bunch of copies of it and train those copies on different random seeds. That is change the data order, sample your data differently, sample new data augmentation. Where do they land? Do they land in the same convex region or different convex regions? And the way that you figure that out is you just take two copies of the network and start looking at the loss landscape between them. And, you know, if it's flat, cool, they're in the same convex region. If it's if there's a spike, oh, there's a barrier between them. So it's these kind of, in some sense, one-dimensional slices of the loss landscape that end up being, you know, that end up being very helpful for trying to make sense of it. The loss landscape is this ultra-high dimensional thing, and I don't think any attempt to visualize it is very productive. You're just taking this, you're taking this high-dimensional thing and trying to compress it down to something much smaller I don't know if that really works. You're losing a lot of information. But here, what I like is you're taking these one-dimensional slices. These are high fidelity. These are completely, you're looking at the lost landscape. You're just looking at these very tiny, narrow slices of a very high-dimensional space. But they happen to be important slices because they relate two different networks to each other. So it's, you know, but then you kind of get to the question, well, why is this a good metric? Why does this matter? Um, and I, the answer is honestly, well, it seems to have some descriptive power and it seems to distinguish networks that have different properties in other ways. So, you know, it seemed to work here and it seems to work in a bunch of other places. It's become kind of a popular way of distinguishing things. And you could end up in a way that would, you know, for example, you know, maybe everything is in the same convex region at the end of training, which is true for, you know, small linear, small fully connected networks on MNIST. You do kind of see this. Everything ends up in basically the same convex region so it doesn't matter too much. Um, but in larger networks, thankfully, it doesn't. And so this is a meaningful metric. Um, but at the end of the day, the other cool thing about it is it tells you when you can average networks and you know, and get a useful artifact out the other end. And that's been something that people have built on. I want to pause on this question of metrics for a second before we move on from this paper. So you've indicated some of the qualities that make what we're concerned with here a good metric the descriptive power and the ability to sort of leverage it in some different ways. But are there ways that you think about perhaps, of course, a good metric is going to be quite situation specific, but are there ways that you think about how you 
evaluate the metrics that you're concerned with and maybe some sort of modes of scrutiny that you put them against before you decide, okay, this is what we're actually interested in measuring here? Um, sort of. I think, you know, it's there's not really a clear way to do this. This is why, you know, the way that you measure things is a little artisanal. Um, I wish there were like a clear razor there and it's something that I haven't ever figured out, you know, a clean way to handle. So if you want to really dig into my papers and rip them apart, look at the way I measure things and tell me there's, that's a dumb way of measuring things. Um, but I think this is a problem that affects the whole field to some extent. Um, when we deal with generative models, we still don't know how to measure what a good generative model is. We still have no idea. So I'm, you know, I, I think this is in some sense an unsolved problem. At the end of the day, I look for things that are non-vacuous. Like this would have been vacuous if every network were in the same linearly connected region or no networks were in the same linearly connected region. So, you know, I look for things that are non-vacuous. And beyond that, it's really in the eye of the beholder. And part of believing science is believing we're measuring the right things. This next paper is is pretty interesting to me. So this one was led by Jonathan Rosenfeld, and it was where you are looking at the error of iteratively magnitude-pruned networks. And Jonathan and you and the other authors sort of show that the error follows this scaling law that has interpretable coefficients depending on the architecture, the task, that has a, a functional form that you can look at. And so I guess we've talked about the idea of, well, proving things in theory, coming up with equations to describe stuff. And so it would seem that kind of coming at how do we get a predictive functional form for a sort of law we're interested in and doing that in a very grounded empirical sense maybe looks a bit or pretty different from from how somebody might justify it purely with theory. So could you tell me a little bit about, I guess, how this paper came about and sort of how you and the other authors worked towards this predictive functional form that you're looking at in this paper? This is all Jonathan to a large extent. I just handed him a lot of networks, a hell of a lot of networks, because these things are scaling laws eat networks. Um, I probably trained more networks for this than I did for any other project all of my other projects combined during my PhD, but Jonathan came and he he's interested in scaling laws and he wanted to do a scaling law for pruning. And I said, sure. So we sat down and we did a scaling law for pruning. Um, and he came with all the math and all the fanciness on that end. And I handed him tons and tons and tons of networks. I think my takeaway here was that, you know, in addition to the fact that a lot of things are predictable um, and I hope the paper conveys this and you can tell me, but Focusing on the fact that the paper or, you know, getting scaling laws right is hard. It is very easy on a log-log plot to get things that look like they kind of fit, but actually doing the hard work of evaluating whether things work and actually doing the hard work of figuring out, like, why is the scaling law right or wrong? I hope the paper brings that out a little bit. Like, I hope the paper emphasizes just how much trickiness and finesse there is in getting it to work, um, because it's not, like, it's not easy. And I, I don't know, I really hope, I hope we told that story too, because it's so easy for people to, to just kind of, you know, fit something to a, on a log log plot and say, ah, yes, I've described it. 
but the little details matter so much. Yeah, I, I did think this was really presented very well in the paper. And and one kind of interesting observation that was made in it was that the scaling law Jonathan came up with suggests that in a particular case, when looking at like CIFAR 10 ResNet, starting too large seems to be detrimental when it comes to looking for something with pretty low error. So this leads to like a higher parameter count. So basically, I guess just to explain the full logic for somebody listening to this, we're interested again in pruning a pretty large network or networks of varying size. We would like to achieve an error that has a certain bound, a certain error epsilon or below. And if we start particularly large, then by the time we find a network, we print to a network that achieves this error, this top bound, we get something that is a little bit larger than had we started with a smaller CIFAR 10 ResNet. And I suppose as somebody just kind of thinking about this from the lottery ticket perspective, there might be something almost counterintuitive about it. The statement, of course, I think depends on distributions and then, of course, also things that you would actually need to justify. But I suppose I could see somebody looking at this and having the intuition, well, if I start with a larger network in the first place, there are more chances, more possible lottery tickets. And therefore, it seems reasonable that maybe there's a good chance I'd find something smaller in that larger network as opposed to a smaller network. And so... I suppose there are so many things that could affect this. The type of pruning that you investigate could have to do with the result. And so I'm curious if that's a line of investigation that Jonathan or or you have thought about a little bit more or ways in which you'd be interested to see it explored, if at all. Certainly thought about it and certainly very interested in seeing it explored. But I will say, and I, I think I said this earlier and I'll I'll stick to it. I don't think these are the best questions to be working on right now in deep learning. And it sounds maybe strange to some people that I'm, you know, that this is a line of work that's gotten some notoriety and some popularity that I'm saying, you know, I don't know if you should go work on it. I don't know if you should go work on it. I think the field has changed pretty fundamentally in the past several years and the field always changes. And we always have to ask ourselves, are we working on the most important questions? And lottery tickets may have looked like a very important question three or four years ago. And they were to me, certainly. Um, I don't know if they still are. This is a good reminder for me to come back to this question with you a little bit later. I do want to finish up the lottery ticket sequence of papers and then kind of talk a little bit more about important questions. But you did have a very interesting paper that I think goes into one of those fundamental questions that sort of prompted a lot of this study in the first place about pruning neural networks at initialization as opposed to at the end of training. And here you were sort of looking at different methods for printing neural networks at initialization. And the kind of subheader of this paper, why are we missing the mark, really um, kind of prompts what you what you found in that paper and, and some of what you were thinking about. But could you tell me a little bit about the sort of challenges that you found in this paper? What if people been trying when it comes to printing at initialization? What did you find about those methods? I think this is a great example of what you measure and how you think about it and how that relates to, you know, what you get and how you look at science. The reason being that, you know, 
let's see, what's the right way of putting it? Um, these are papers that came up with very interesting proposed methods for pruning early in training. And let's just say the papers claimed that they had solved the problem and they had found lottery tickets early in training. And I genuinely don't think that was true. So we have a scientific disagreement here. And the question is how you measure. Um, and I think this paper established kind of what I consider to be the right way of evaluating whether something has really found neural networks at initialization or at any point in training that are as good as what you can find post hoc using, you know, highly inefficient lottery ticket methods. And, you know, I think the short answer is none of these papers held up under scrutiny. Partially, they were no better than some really dumb, naive methods that they didn't test against. And partially, because when you started to try to falsify the logic behind which these methods came about, some of them just completely collapsed. One of the methods in the paper, I tried pruning the opposite of what the paper said to prune and got the same results, which should tell you that any justification the authors claimed for this method, you know, you could justify anything with that. So again, it's a falsifiability question. I think at the end of the day, this is me trying to hold up some papers that made very expansive claims to scrutiny and finding that I think they all withered away under the kind of scientific scrutiny that we should all apply to our own papers. I think in some sense I would use the, I want to be careful in the words I choose. Cause again, these were papers written by students um, and I want to respect that. Um, but I do think that there was not enough of an attempt to falsify their own results. And on the one hand, that means that, you know, I don't think that these were the world's best contributions to the scientific literature. On the other hand, that means that you open yourself up to someone writing a paper like this. That's in some sense a takedown paper. I tried not to write it as a takedown paper because I think those are mean-spirited, but it is in some sense an attempt to bring some scientific order and kind of, you know, some attempts at falsification to a space that where people were kind of, I think, exercising some wishful thinking in their papers. And, you know, in some sense, now that I'm kind of the police officer walking the beat on the lottery ticket space, it's my job to occasionally write one of these and show people that if you are not sufficiently careful, someone will be more careful and make you look bad. It's something I tell students all the time. You know, you can be, you can be less careful and try to fudge things so they look good for you and get your paper published, but somebody's going to really make you look bad a year later or two years later. And you have to wait and wait and wait and hope that that never happens. And one of the papers that I talk about in this, in this work was published in the same iClear as the lottery ticket paper. Um, that was, I think, two or three years later that I wrote a paper that I think hopefully put that method to bed as something meaningful and useful. Um, and that's not a, you know, if you do a, a slightly shoddy job, you will have to live in fear for years that someone will finally call you out on it. It's good to have papers like this every so often, or I suppose sooner rather than later, because I think the other risk, if you don't have a policeman, unless everybody is just doing everything perfectly all the time, which I think is the ideal situation, but maybe uh, tough to imagine actually happening, is that a field kind of stagnates over time. I, I still remember seeing this paper a couple of years ago that looked at the state of recommendation, neural recommendation system research over the previous decade. And their conclusion was that 
a lot of the so-called advances in your recommenders were committing many of the sins that you've mentioned here about using easy baselines or different things that really made it actually very difficult to compare not only their systems with other neural recommenders, but also with recommender systems that didn't even incorporate neural networks. And so these authors then kind of went in and and being the policemen, looked at a lot of very basic methods, brought their baselines up to a good standard and found that they were competitive with or outperformed the so-called state of the art, even up to the point that they were writing the paper. And this paper's title had a worrying analysis of the past decade of neural recommendation approaches. And I think that that really illustrates, well, what are the scientific risks for like a whole area of research? And, you know, I don't know if the claim stands up that, okay, near like recommendation systems were making no progress over the past 10 years, but it does illustrate, I guess, a, a definitely a worrying picture of what could happen to a whole field or like a subfield if that type of work goes unchecked. Yeah, I think it's it's a balance as with all good things. You know, first of all, you can't write, that's the right way of putting it, you can't write only takedown papers because you're contributing nothing to the field. And I think people who do that, it's hard to build a career. And honestly, at the end of the day, you're not really building that much science. Um, the other challenge is that it's easy to write takedown papers in some sense. You can find fault with anything. So the answer is, how do you do this in a useful way? Like a takedown paper should not just be a takedown paper. It should be a way of setting a scientific bar for future papers to meet. And I hope I did that okay in this paper. It was partially just a takedown paper because I was dissatisfied with the claims that were being made in the field and felt like it was my job to intervene. But partially, I hope it was a... I hope it was a way of setting a better standard that other people could build on if they wanted to if they wanted to do productive work in the future in this field. And I, you know, I don't know if I did a sufficiently good job of that, but I really hope that you know, I hope it was helpful. And I think you have to light a path forward if you're going to take down work, not just trash a bunch of stuff and then walk away. The way you articulated the claims and the, the challenges you identified in that paper did seem really careful to me. One sort of related question I wanted to ask about, and this is, again, kind of a matter of empirical study, so I have to ask it as an empirical question. But as you pointed out, pruning at initialization, that desire might be fundamentally challenging for multiple reasons. But somebody might think, and, and this is, of course, with the, the usual caveat that maybe lottery tickets and these sorts of questions are not the most important things to be studying right now, but more more as a question of curiosity. Maybe you don't have to train all the way to completion to know something about questions like which weights are important. And in that line, although not exactly justifying this claim, uh, somebody else I've interviewed, Hadi Zhou, worked um, on sort of a line of research. I followed your lottery tickets. I, I guess you might be familiar with that made this claim that masking is training, right? And if we have a neural network who has some weights that are tending towards zero by the time the neural network is finished training, and again, you know, it's important to note that you know this when training is complete, but you could just mask those weights to zero. And that's sort of uh, something you can do earlier on once you know the dynamics of training. 
But have you observed any signals or noticed any work that has come up with signals about things that we can know sort of early in training um, or kind of at midway? You've mentioned, you know, different dynamics and things you can examine at different stages of training that might be helpful in terms of things like pruning or, or not necessarily doing things at initialization, but a little bit later. Honestly, the answer is no right now. And I think that's disappointing to me. I think we're going to, I think the future of this work, to the extent that there's, there should be a future to this work, uh, and that's, again, a conversation we can come back to, is going to be about whether there are different pruning methods we should use during training than we should try to use at initialization or at the end of training. To me, that's kind of the most interesting question. And I, you know, I don't know. I think to me, that's still the open question. Um, I'm not entirely sure what, you know, I'm not entirely sure where we go from here. Maybe we can't find, you know, maybe we can't find lottery tickets efficiently. That's an okay outcome. That's just how it goes sometimes. And so I, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not stuck on that. I think Hattie's done some fantastic empirical work in this area, but we still haven't solved the fundamental problem. And, you know, until, you know, maybe we can't solve that problem. Maybe we just don't have the technology yet. Maybe there's something else we have to learn first. Um, that's how science goes. So there was a, another paper that I had initially wanted to discuss on predicting task forgetting in LLMs, which you were second author on. But I think it actually might be more interesting for us at this point to, before we move into Mosaic, actually talk a little bit more about this question of well, is lottery tickets a direction worth pursuing or not? And if not, or whether or not it is, what are some questions that you might think are more important? So I, I do kind of just want to pose that question to you. You've indicated definitely that a lot of things have changed over the past couple of years in the landscape of deep learning research. And from a lot of what you said, it does sound to me like you seem to be coming towards maybe not a definitive negative answer, but maybe leaning in that direction about whether people should be pursuing further research in lottery tickets. So could you tell me a little bit, I guess, on, on how your thinking has developed about the importance of this question over time and, and sort of particular things? I guess, you know, everybody's kind of aware of the history of the past few years of AI, or a lot of people listening to this would be. But how your personal perspectives on what's going on right now and how that interacts with what you think are important questions has developed recently. Yeah, I mean, the field has changed. We're focused on big foundation models these days as a field in the same way that in 2017 or 2018, the field kind of narrowed to focus on deep learning and not all of machine learning. Now we're focused on a small subset of deep learning and that's totally okay. I just think that, you know, we need to be we need to just accept that. Um, I think a lot of academia is in denial or is in the bargaining stage right now. And, you know, we need to just kind of make our peace. This is this is where we are now. Um, and adapt your questions accordingly. And if you're not working on these larger models and you're not working on questions related to this right now, you're not working on anything that's going to be interesting or useful. So I, I don't know. I think it's kind of a, either you can accept that or, you know, you're still working on lottery tickets or adversarial examples for CIFAR 10 in 2023, in which case you need to ask yourself some fundamental questions about what you're doing, quite frankly. That's fair enough. 
The, the second component of that, I, I think, is definitely true. The first component about if you're not working on foundation models, you're not doing anything interesting or useful, I guess, is, is interesting to me as a claim. Um, again, I'm not saying that I completely disagree, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering the way that you had just articulated that sounds like this sort of this is where the field is now. And I think I agree with you that what people are going to be most interested in is work that is sort of circling questions that surround this. But I think that there's also that alternative claim to be made that while we've landed in a particular case, which we do have to accept as an artifact of what has happened to work with the field. But I suppose that isn't to say that there don't exist other directions, maybe not lottery tickets on CFR 10, but other directions that could be valuable in the future. And I think kind of maintaining that openness of what people are working on does seem at least important in terms of the kind of meta question of making progress in a field. And so I I guess I'm curious if that's something you agree with or how you would sort of couch your claim in those broader terms. I think I would put it pretty simply that we all need to be self-critical about what we're working on. And I think a lot of folks are pretty uncritical about what are we working on and what is the field working on? And if we see that if a lot of other people are working on it or someone important is working on it, then it must be an important topic. Um, you know, Jeff Hinton gives a Turing Award lecture on this forward forward algorithm. And then you see a bunch of papers on it, even though he didn't even present enough evidence in that talk to make it remotely compelling as a subject of study. And we shouldn't just take Jeff at his word. We should hold Jeff to the same standards as everybody else as a scientist. Um, and so I think that's a bad, that that is a bad way to do things. Um, the right way to do things is to be self-critical and to ask yourself whether you're working on useful things or why you're working on certain things. And I, you know, I don't know. I like to hope that I'm very self-critical in that respect personally. Um, why am I working on lottery tickets? Well, I'm not anymore. And I tell my students not to work on lottery tickets because I don't think it's that useful. And, you know, why am I working on, you know, I don't know why am I working on data these days? Because I think data is an important question as we get into these big networks. Um, you know, why am I working on evaluation of LLMs these days? Because I think until we we literally can't answer any other question until we know how to evaluate what success looks like. So I, I don't know. Those are the questions that to me, those are what are calling to me right now, personally. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think this might be a good segue into some of the other work you've been doing recently. And so you mentioned Mosaic as sort of a natural continuation of some of the work you've done on lottery tickets. And of course, Mosaic does, I think, you more closely to some of those important questions of today. How can we train very large neural networks? How can we do this efficiently? Could you tell me a little bit of the story of your involvement with Mosaic? And then of course, there has been the the recent acquisition by Databricks, which is really exciting. So a lot has kind of happened in between. It would be interesting to hear you kind of relate your experience with it. Yeah, I I think it's, you know, Mosaic started when our now co-founders reached out to um, you know, reached out to me and said, nice lottery ticket paper, I want to do a startup based on that. And you can imagine what I said, um, which was no, um, that's not a good idea. And we, but then eventually we talked about it and went lottery ticket, maybe not. 
but you know, from there we we talked about efficiency in general and whether there was room to still improve the algorithms and improve the way we train neural networks to reduce cost. And the answer was, yeah, there's a lot of room for that. And then that's where Mosaic started. It's still the same empirical approach that we had in the lottery ticket paper. It's still the same desire to reduce the cost of training in the lottery ticket paper. Um, but the difference is that we, you know, we're not using pruning because honestly, pruning isn't that practically relevant. And so, you know, that's really kind of, you know, that's where it all came from. Could you tell me about some of maybe the highlights of what's come out of Mosaic? So I think a lot of people will have heard about MPT 30 billion pretty recently. And of course, Mosaic developed the platform, the LLM foundry, a lot of these things. Could you maybe just go through um, a couple of those and introduce maybe for people who, who aren't so familiar? Yeah, we we build tools to make it easy to train large scale models for people who would like them. It's, you know, it sounds really boring. It is so hard to repeatably consistently train a great 30 billion parameter model or 100 billion parameter model or what have you. And we built the tools to do that over and over and over again for diffusion models, for, you know, for language models and for a bunch of other stuff too. And people come they train and then they go. Sometimes they come back. Um, oftentimes they come back and want to train something bigger. Um, and that's really kind of, that's our business. So at the end of the day, we have to know how to train these big models, first of all. But second of all, we have to build the tools and the product to make it repeatable. The one other thing I'll throw in there is that involves reducing cost. It has to be cheap enough that people can actually do this. So we spend a lot of time on efficiency. So I think there there are a lot of kind of details to the question of how do you form a business around this question of, well, we'd like to help you train models more efficiently and pitching it to people and people initially working with you and then coming back. And I suppose a lot of that is related to what they are trying to do with the models they're developing in the first place, whether they need to retrain, fine tune, update models and these sorts of things. And so I'm curious if there's, um, Anything, if you can relate maybe some concrete examples to whatever extent you can about customers you've worked with, things that they've been interested in and kind of how that's manifested. Yeah, I think a lot of folks need custom models. At the end of the day, a lot of folks need, you know, for various reasons, they're working on a domain for which there doesn't exist a model, or they just need something better than what exists publicly. Lama 2 is a perfectly good model, but people need more sometimes. Um, you know, people need something better or something very specialized for custom data. And in those cases, you just got to train your own model. And in some sense, you know, my job is to make sure that's possible. So, you know, we certainly see this a lot. Um, Replit is one of the most, one of the easiest public examples because, you know, they were willing to, you know, they were willing to talk about it publicly. And most folks we work with don't like to publicize that they're working with us because it's a competitive disadvantage for their competitors to know they've built one of these models. But, you know, the the Replit example, they came to us with 10 days before their big developer conference and said, you know, we need a we need a, mod, a great code model that we can show off. And three days later, they had it. And they had a week to go and clean it up and play with it and, you know, fine tune it in various ways and see what they could do. That's what we like to offer. Just come in get it done and move on. It should not be high drama. It's expensive, but it should not be difficult or uncertain or a month long pursuit. It should be something you do, you take care of and get moving. 
So this, of course, happened very recently, but with the acquisition from Databricks, how do you think about how Mosaic will kind of integrate with what Databricks is doing and, and how you see that connection going forward? Data is the lifeblood of large language models. And now we have a way to connect into the data stores for a vast number of enterprises so we can help them if they want large language models. Um, beyond that, you know, we have a group of 10,000 customers we can go sell this to and a group of 3,000 salespeople who can sell it. So I hope we will have Mosaic running within thousands of businesses next year. That's really, that's success for me. And I think this puts us on a path to that way faster than we ever would have been on our own. And there's definitely, you know, this is a one plus one equals three kind of situation with us in Databricks. And we're very excited about this. And it's been awesome so far. The last sort of section of things I wanted to talk about before we close here was less on on your AI policy work that you've mentioned earlier. And I suppose it's a really interesting time to be discussing AI policy right now because it feels like everybody's interested in this because of everything that we've seen recently and the interest that Congress and, and sort of nations around the world have had that are developing, I think, at various speeds. But as you mentioned, you were a staff technologist at the Center for Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law, and you'd worked on police use of facial recognition. I'm curious how your your involvement in policy has sort of evolved over time and maybe what you've seen in the evolution of government interest and policy interest in AI as we've sort of seen the developments in the technical sphere over these past couple of years? I'll say three things. Um, one is that policy takes time. It is not a fast process. It's not designed to be a fast process. Um, and you have to sometimes wait for the world to change as well. Um, so, you know, as an example, our work on police use of facial recognition came a half decade before, you know, through a wave of amazing technical work on the part of other folks, um, plus society getting to the right place for bans to happen. And this technology to legitimately get banned in a lot of jurisdictions. Um, that's something that, you know, I don't know, that's something that took time. Um, policy does take time. The interest in AI is happening years after, you know, we and other folks first rang the bell that there might be concerns here. Again, that takes time and that's okay. In fact, that's kind of by design to some extent. Um, the second piece is that, you know, I think we have a lot of tricky questions to answer right now about what role we want AI to play in society. Before we worry about policy and laws and anything else, we need to ask ourselves fundamental questions about what we want. And to me, policy is the art of asking what we want as a society. Law is the art of actually putting it into practice. And so I, I like to be at the table and try to help people get technical information. And the last piece is remembering that we as technologists are not the center of this conversation. We have knowledge to contribute, but there are skilled people who are used to weighing these different interests in society and helping to chart a direction. And we are, you know, we are here to help them. We are not here to run the process or tell people what to do, even though we as technologists tend to have a lot of hubris on this stuff. Those are really helpful things to keep in mind. And as you're saying, we do have a lot of tricky questions about the role we want AI to play in society right now, and that technologists should be playing 
a role here in, in providing a lot of important detail. And I know this is kind of a touchy thing right now, but there is a lot of discourse on the way that larger companies, OpenAI and such, are very involved with talking to policymakers about regulations. And I'm curious if there's anything you can say about how you think about the sort of landscape environment we're in right now when it comes to the discourse over regulations and policies and thinking about AI. I'm less worried about the discourse personally and more about the outcomes, to be honest. Um, You know, discourse is always messy. That's just kind of how it goes in this field. Um, So I think that the, you know, the much more important question is, where do we end up? How do we regulate these models? What are the outcomes? Is our open source model something we're still allowed to do? Is it something we should do? Um, I don't know anymore. I'm, I kind of wonder. Um, and I think these are the important questions. Not, you know, the nature of the discourse and who's coming to which White House photo op and what Sam Altman is saying in front of Congress. Those are attempts to influence the process. But the much more important part starts with, you know, what do we even want? What does a good outcome look like and why? I think that's that's where things begin. Yeah, I, I suppose I could have framed that question a little bit better than, than asking you about the discourse. I think that you did speak to what I was actually interested in there, which was, well, a lot of the worries that are being articulated right now are how the ways in which, you know, maybe it does involve Sam Altman showing up at this photo op and then how that impacts things downstream or the ways that certain interests might influence the outcomes in ways that might be good for certain sections of people, but not for everybody. But again, I think that's sort of an empirical question. You have to kind of look at what's actually playing out and happening. And what do we want to happen? I think, I think the important part here is what do we even want to happen? It's great to criticize open AI for attempting regulatory capture and trying to shill for what's best for their business. That's totally fine to observe. But that doesn't actually answer the question of what you want. And I think we need to start there in general. Yeah, I I think for somebody who's maybe listening to this, who does carry some of those worries or is open to that criticism, that seems like a good takeaway. And I think this actually might be a very good note to close on as well. I think that a lot of these questions around policy and and regulation are are extremely, extremely fuzzy right now. And you, I think throughout this conversation, both in the side of research, but then also in policy, have done a lot of encouraging people to kind of step back and think about concrete, fundamental questions. And I really, really appreciate your approach to research and, and your ways of thinking about a lot of these things. So I do want to thank you for the work you're doing and, and for being so generous with your time and for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I hope this was useful to you and for your listeners. I you know, I if I can leave everybody on one final note, just ask yourself what's important and take a step back. I hope that came through loud and clear during this conversation, but you have to do it constantly. And I think people in the research community, policy community and industry don't do it enough. And it's to all of our detriments right now, given this incredible moment that we're at in the technology. We're missing out on some cool opportunities if we don't take a step back and ask what's important all the time. Yeah, I hope everyone listening to this will will take that lesson.
And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.